0: Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 7, we'll take the whole chapter tonight. It's just 16 verses. And the Apostle Paul now moves into kind of a bridge between chapter 6 and the content there and chapter 8, um, which is going to be a, a fairly lengthy discourse on our worship and giving. But before we get there, Paul now is going to take some time to encourage restoration and reconciliation. And, And he's going to do that with the body because remember these letters are corrective in nature. The first one was very severe. The second one kind of readdresses a couple of problems with the church. But really what's happening now is the Apostle Paul's making a bridge. He's saying, look, what really matters is what's going on in your heart. What's happening between you and God what are you using to build the kingdom on, and how are you going to draw people to that place to where their relationships can be restored one with another, and most importantly, their vertical relationship with God? And so we'll pick up in verse 1, take the entire chapter tonight, all 16 verses of it, and if you join me, we'll pray and ask God to speak through his amazing word. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you. It's just been such an amazing week thus far. Lord, to just think on what you've already done today. We, we dare ask you, Lord, move in our midst tonight. Uh, cause us to just see you high and lifted up. Lord, let the train of your robe fill the temple of our hearts. Would your glory spill over onto us and out to others. And we just give you tonight and pray that you would use it, Lord, as we study your word. Would you speak to us as your people? In Jesus' name, amen. Verse one, and therefore, remember that word always means look back. See what it's there for, amen. Having these promises, beloved. So he again tones down what has been uh, a tough addressing of a body that's had some issues, some problems, some things that are going on in their hearts and their minds that needed to be spoken to, that Paul has addressed head-on, point-blank, bluntly even, one might use that term. He says, having these promises, the promises that God has made to them about who they are in Christ, what their life is supposed to look like, how they're supposed to act, what they're supposed to be. he says, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves. Now, in the moment you read those few words and you kind of think of how our sanctification happens, you almost go, Well, you know, God cleanses me. I don't cleanse myself. No, there's a part that you play. There's a part that you play in the restoration of relationships and the restoring of what God wants to do in your life. We are to cleanse ourselves. And he goes on to give us a very general understanding of what that actually looks like from all filthiness. From all filthiness. From every bit and every kind of dirt. Everything that the world can throw at us. We have a responsibility to in essence aid the work that God is doing in our lives by keeping our own selves clean. To actually wash ourselves and he says where those two areas are that we need to address our flesh and spirit and so if we're going to cleanse ourselves, there's a part of you that's the external part of you that needs a cleansing that other people can see that's your flesh so that would imply virtually everything that you could do that outwardly other people could observe So we have a responsibility to seek the holiness of God in the things that other people can see. And so here comes the first part of this. The second part is the spirit. That's the internal part that only God sees. And so Paul is saying, look, if we really want to see God move in our midst, if we want to watch God work in his greatest way, if there's something broken in your life and you're seeking to fix it, which is the reason for these two letters, then you have to join God in his endeavor to set us free from those things which are contrary to who he is as he works in our lives. Whether it's on the outside or whether it's on the inside. You you see, there are things that you probably know about yourself that there may be no other person on this planet Knows those things. But God in heaven does know those things. They're things of the Spirit. They're things that God wants to deal with in our lives. And he goes on to say something that pertains to our sanctification, becoming more like Christ, when he says perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, you might think, well, how do you perfect holiness? Isn't holiness already perfect? And the answer to that is in God's case, absolutely. God is incapable of getting any better at being who he is. Amen? But we are very capable at getting better at who he is. We absolutely can grow in holiness. We absolutely can be perfected in that sense in holiness as we, and he gives us a secret here, fear God. And that's not the, ooh, I'm really scared of God and he's going to, you know, tramp me down and fry me because he's this omnipotent being. But in the reverence of God and simply understanding who God is. And so the apostle opens up referring to these promises, which are God's assurances of his presence and who he is. He's going to tell us about the fellowship that we're supposed to have with one another as we obey and walk in holiness. You see, there's a couple of things that get messed up when we don't perfect who we're supposed to be in Christ. And they're very simple. If I fail to do my part in aiding God to try and be what he wants me to be, then my relationship with him gets damaged. We call that sin, amen? Uh, I did a little skit with the kids today, and I, I brought out one of my many backpacks. I have all kinds of them, various things that they're used for. Some are bigger and larger, and some are very large for week-long things. And I brought in a day pack, and it was completely filled with rocks. And I had scattered them all over the, the stage, and, and I equated them to sin. Sin. Because sin is hard. It does hard things in our life. And as I went around, I kind of named all these rocks. And after I got done, I put all these rocks in this backpack. And we had the cross on the stage, which is coming back. But we, I, I, I explained to them, I said, that's what sin does in your life. It makes it very difficult for you to walk with the Lord because you're carrying around this burden all the time. This thing that should be light, it's meant to be an enjoyment. We're supposed to walk in the abundance of new life in Christ and have this joy and spring in our step in who we are. But if we're not perfecting holiness and we're carrying around a bag of rocks, the journey is an arduous one, isn't it? Your life becomes hard. And so Paul says we have to perfect this holiness in us. We need to cleanse ourselves, whatever contaminates us. And and if we don't, then it ruins our relationship with God. And if other believers are in our midst, it will also then destroy our fellowship with other believers. Because typically most believers want to be more like Jesus. And so when we start walking away from Jesus then people who are trying to follow Jesus, we automatically start drifting apart. It's what happens in a marriage relationship. When you have one spouse that's walking with the Lord and one spouse that's not walking with the Lord, they're going opposite directions. And so the marriage suffers. The fellowship within the marriage suffers. And so we start to work on this holiness factor in our life. Why? Because I truly do reverence God. I want to grow. I want to mature in my holiness. I want to become more like Jesus. And when I say holiness, when the Bible says holiness, it's not simply talking about a bunch of rules and regulations and things that you can equate to things that we might call religious. It is the sum and total of who you are as you represent Christ. And so in that sense, the Greek root that's used for the word holy with an H And the Greek root for the word holy with a W are exactly the same. In other words, holy as in like God's character and holy as in completely. God wants us to be totally like him and he actually wants us to be totally, totally like him. Amen? Does that make sense? In other words, he wants all of us. He wants us to actually be fully submitted to climbing the stairs to his holy presence. We we want to be where the Lord is, and we want to be like he is. I was going through some of my library, and I was just looking up holiness book. Great book, by the way. If you don't have it in your library, you want to get it, Knowledge of the Holy A.W. Tozer. And he said this, holy is the way God is. And to be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being anything other than it is. Because he is holy, all of his attributes are holy. Holy. Whatever we think of his as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. In other words, the sum and total of who we are supposed to be is supposed to be completely like God. That's the goal. Now, anybody fall short of that? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, there's some of us in here. Yeah, of course we do. We, we fall short uh, of that incredible divine standard But can I tell you something? It's still the standard. It's still the mark that we aim for. It's still the target. I don't know how many of you have ever spent much time doing archery. I have. One of those things that you do as a camp director. And we in the Gill family would like to think we're fairly decent at it. We're not pros by any shake of the imagination. But I can put a target out there at 50 yards, and I can put most of the arrows in that target. But you know what? Anybody can hit a ball field. If you just pull the arrow and release it and shoot it straight up in the air, it's going to hit somewhere in the grass. But it's not going to hit a target. God wants us to be so focused that we're actually aiming at something. He doesn't want to shooting our lives into the air and seeing what happens. And by the way, boys love to do exactly that. They stand in the middle of the ball field, grab a bow and arrow, shoot it straight up in the air. They cannot see where it goes because it's a pin dot once it reaches altitude. And it's coming back in and they're like, run! That's what guys do. You know, sometimes Christians do that. They they shoot their life into the air and they think something good and godly is going to happen out of it. Brothers and sisters, we need to be climbing the highway to holiness, the stairs that that lead us to God. It's an interesting thing. Matter of fact, it just reopened. Uh, There are a set of stairs in Rome called the Scala Sancta, which are, by Catholic tradition, they're supposed to be the actual marble steps that led up to Pilate's Praetorium there in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem. And St. Helena brought those in 324 uh, to, to back to Rome and they were set up and it was supposed to be these holy stairs that Jesus himself had walked on and, and there's a number of frescoes in this. Basically, it's a hallway that leads to nowhere that just simply has these stairs and they're so worn from people climbing them on their knees, believing that they would get closer to God that way, that, that they're, they're worn out. They're actually dipped in the center. So uh, about 400 years ago, they were actually covered uh, with these mahogany stair coverings, uh, basically wood. And so those are being remade. So for about six months, they've been opened up and people can actually crawl on them. Supposedly there's little crosses where there were drops of blood visible from where Jesus spilled his blood as he was climbing these stairs. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is that's kind of how people are. We we think if we've just crawled on our hands and knees for 25 yards up a set of 28 steps, that somehow we're going to end up closer to God Getting closer to God is a lifelong journey. It's not a set of stairs in a hallway that are going to get you some indulgence. It is a lifetime of trying to be as close to Jesus as we can get. The true holy stairs are found there in 2 Peter, actually, in chapter 1. And it says this, Add... To your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self control, to self control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And you kind of get the point that Peter's trying to make. Now, I don't know how good you are at brotherly kindness. I know I can use some help sometimes in that area. I don't know how good you are in godliness. I know that sometimes I can use help. But when it comes to self-control and pecan pie, it's just all over for me. It's like... The devil's in the details, isn't it? You see, when we're climbing the highway to holiness, when we're climbing that stairway that leads us closer to the Lord, there are some things we need to climb that are kind of difficult for some of us to climb. Amen? It takes a lot of effort to actually get there. It's not just 28 marble steps on your knees. It's God dealing with the very deepest things in our lives in such a way that we are truly being transformed by the renewing of our minds. If you happened to be a Muslim, you would uh, make a similar journey. You would go to Mecca and you'd kiss this black stone called the Kaaba, And uh, you'd then grab some little pebbles and throw them uh, three pillars. And you'd drink from the well of Hagar. And you would do these things that, that supposedly uh, you need to do at one time in your life if you're able-bodied. Look, there's nothing you can do one time in your life that's going to completely make you like Jesus or like anyone else for that matter. And, and so the Apostle Paul is talking about something that we do over our entire lifetime. And it begins with having the right understanding of who God is, the right kind of reverence for God. And by the way, that is not as I said already, just fear. Fear in the sense of understanding who God is is a necessary part, but it's not all there is to reverencing God because God actually has adopted us into his family, amen? If you happen to be a member of a family and you're here tonight, maybe some of you are all in this room, I can pretty much guarantee you nobody wants to sit around the Thanksgiving table and talk about who's afraid of who the most, amen? That's going to be a pretty dull existence, isn't it? I'm the most powerful, I can kill all of you. It's not much like a family, is it? You see, some people, that's actually how they relate to God. They sit down at the dinner table, you've been adopted into the family, and they just sit there like, oh no, he's going to kill me. And then other people are like the perpetual joking member of the family that nothing is ever serious and they're over, you know, shooting their green beans across the room and, you know, they don't care what happens and their spots on the wall and pretty soon the one that everyone else is afraid of now gives you a reason to be afraid of them. Amen? So there's a place for both to come together at the dinner table of the family of God on that journey towards holiness. The person who lacks self-control that kind of can't keep their food on their plate needs to learn a certain type of lesson. And the person who's just simply afraid of this, this incredibly powerful being needs to learn how to love more. And so Paul says, let's grow in our holiness. It's a remarkable thing you don't fear God you're going to be in trouble at some point in time but if you fear him too much you're going to run out of your relationship with him in that sense pretty soon you'll, you'll no longer have a love relationship which is what God wants and so he says open your hearts up receive us so if the Corinthians could just kind of get this part right the rest of it is going to follow The way it's supposed to happen in each of our lives. And so there's three things that I think we can glean from the rest of this passage. The first thing that we see, beginning in verse 2, is that Paul was an encouragement to the church. He's trying to bring them into this place. He's trying to say, look, let's do this together. Open your hearts to us, verse 2 says. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've cheated no one. I do not say this condemned, condemn, for I said it before, that you were in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf, and I'm filled with comfort. For I'm exceedingly joyful in all of our tribulation. And so Paul just says, look, we're in this thing together. I'm not ashamed of you. I love you not trying to just simply correct you all the time. And one of the that we need to learn, I think, in the church is just simply how to encourage each other. I, I, I truly wish that, that I had a thousand encouragers and zero discouragers in the church. People just simply learn to rejoice and lift up other people's hands and build them up and... Do the things that are necessary for everyone else to be their very best. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, look, I'm willing to go through anything for you. I'll live and die with you. I'll go through any trouble with you. I'll spend my life on your behalf. He's actually boasting of them, even while other people were criticizing. Do you have the capacity... And I think this is a good question for all of us. If you're climbing those stairs to holiness, you want to be closer to God. As you're on that journey, do you have the capacity to be joyful in tribulation? Can you absolutely look at your own life and say, you know what? Even if I'm going through something tough, I want to be a blessing to other people. That was the Apostle Paul. You see, a lot of us are conditioned that however we're feeling, that's how we act towards other people. It's not very encouraging. Because the truth is, we're all going through stuff. Amen? I mean, it's just true. We're all going through stuff. Every one of us is going through stuff in our lives. And so if I bring my stuff and dump it on you, and you bring your stuff and dump it on me, guess what? We're going to have a dump party. Amen? We're just, uh, the pile's going to get bigger. Nobody's burden's going to be lifted. Nobody's going to be made to, to feel encouraged. We're just going to sit there and dump on each other, and, and I'm going to dislike what's going on in your life, and you're going to dislike what's going on in mine, because I dislike what's going on in my life, so I've got to dislike what's going on in your life. That's not a way for us to, to really thrive as we climb towards the Lord. We need to be joyful even in tribulation. That's exactly what James writes about, by the way. Most of you, I think many of you, know this story. If I were to describe all of his attributes, you'd probably eventually get it. But Abraham Lincoln, when he was a young child, he was seven, he went to work. At nine years old, his mother died. He started to work full-time from nine years old. He had no education, wanted to go to law school. And you look at his life, and man, it's just like absolutely nothing in it was joyful. But it was that man that in the midst of the tail end, of the Civil War established the holiday that we call Thanksgiving. He still realized that in heaven sat a wonderfully good God. It's part of our VBS this week. God is good. Amen? We need to live our lives in such a way that people understand God is good. Because God is good. And just because we're going through some difficulty does not negate the fact that God is good. We need to to get that part because I think we all need to be encouraged. A second thing in encouraging others, bringing about restoration within the church titus now is going to personally encourage paul and this is how it works paul encourages the church somebody comes along and encourages paul and you can see how god will restore this whole relationship between these guys that you could kind of say if you were to just read the letters that paul wrote to corinth you would kind of go man he just whooped them they kind of took a little bit of a beating you might even be wondering whether paul actually did love them and so Paul knows that he's had to say some difficult things. And so what does God do? Sends Titus, verse 5, to personally encourage him. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. There, there's a there's, uh, better part of a couple hundred volunteers roaming around the church that their bodies have had no rest these last four days in BBS. We were troubled on every side. And, and think about the life that they lived. You know, we... We have our own difficulties in our modern time, but back then, the rather subsistence life. And so, you know, you, you, you worked or you didn't eat. You, you worked or you died. I mean, it was kind of one of those things. You either went and did what you need to do, or you were dead. Troubled on every side. Outside there were conflicts, and inside there were fears. And nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast. uh, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Can I just remind you, never underestimate your capacity to be a comfort to someone else. A handful of words sometimes can be all it takes to push somebody over the top of that hill that seems like they're going to roll back down, and you can be that one that lifts them up and helps them get to the top. When I was in Boy Scouts, we were making the tail end of a loop in the High Sierras. It starts in Onion Valley, which is just outside of the little town of Independence in the Owens Valley. And you go from Onion Valley and go all the way down to to Mount Whitney. Mount Whitney, the highest mountain here in the lower 48 outside of Alaska. Uh, And when you come to Mount Whitney from the backside, you go through... A couple of meadow areas and then there's a very stark last about 15 miles or so that goes through an area and ends up at this little campsite called guitar lake and if you look up from guitar lake up towards what is mount whitney you can't actually see it because it's kind of shielded by the shoulder of the mountain when you look at it, it is just like this completely blank scree slope that has nothing but rocks from top to bottom and the morning when you leave to climb to the top of Mount Whitney before you descend down the other side and back out of the high Sierras, you're going to have about a 27-mile day by the time it's all said and done. And by the time you get up to the last set of switchbacks before you come to this place called Trail Crest Pass, and you get up there you're pushing upwards of 13,000 feet at that pass. And a lot of people are just, they're like, well, can we go back the way we came? Do we have to keep going on? Isn't there some other way? What do we do? And sometimes all it takes is somebody else saying, Let, let's do it together. We can make this. There's only another half mile. Take one step at a time. Let's just continue. The other side is downhill. You know, just simple conversational things to where you're encouraging somebody to go beyond their own pain, beyond their own experience, to get to a place they've never been before. Sometimes all it takes is a word from somebody else. Because, see, the truth is that person is not going to get any stronger that last half mile. They're probably going to get weaker. The truth is the altitude is going to get worse. They're going to get higher. The truth is the pain in their legs is going to get worse because they're going to have to go up, and then you're going to have to have the rubber knees going down. The truth is... Other people can be very, very used of the Lord to encourage you to climb to new heights so that you can experience new things so that God can use us in new ways. But you have to be like a Titus that's willing to say to somebody, look, let's do it together. Verse seven, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. In other words, when you comfort someone else, they may go on to comfort yet somebody else. Being a comfort, being an encouragement builds steam. But I can tell you the converse is also true. If you were a negative Ned, I was going to use the lady's name. I had you see how I struggled that. You're a negative Ned, you, you just can't, you, you can't say anything good no matter if your life depends on it or not. When you convince other people that things are terrible and things should be different, you are building a head of steam in negativity. And eventually that negativity starts to affect other people, and pretty soon, there's nothing but a bunch of negative people wandering around. A bunch of people who cannot encourage. It doesn't matter what would happen. If you were to have everything go right, they'd still find some negative thing to say. Titus was an encourager who had been himself encouraged by others. Encouragement builds up the church. And when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more, you know what helps when you tell somebody that you're thinking about them and caring about them and praying about them and you're worried about them and concerned about them and you know that God's got this? Sometimes just those simple words are enough. Titus personally encouraged Paul for even if I made you sorry with my letter, now you can see it. Paul's actually bemoaning the fact a little bit that he had to write such a strong letter. You know, it's not, can I tell you, it is not fun to correct people. Pastor Alex and I were going back and forth with a text, and we were just kind of dealing with things, and he had sent me a podcast, and I had listened to it, and you know, I come from the business world, and it's a long time ago, but I still understand very fully how the business world works in our world. And, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do when you are a business person that you can't do when you're a pastor, amen? You know, I can't just walk around, well, get out if you don't like it. I'll hire somebody else. <laughs> Doesn't really work all that well, you know? Why? Because I'm supposed to be climbing the highway to holiness, amen? Amen? I'm supposed to be taking these sacred stairs that lead up to God. I'm like, get out of here. That doesn't work very well. Because it's not like Jesus. It actually is harder to be like Jesus than it is to be like the world. It's more difficult. Why? Because you have to do things His way. And when I do things His way, I can't do things my way. I I can't resort to my flesh. Remember where we started God's after dealing with both our flesh and our spirit. He wants me to say with my mouth those things which are edifying and build up, and He wants me to have in my spirit a motivation behind what I'm saying that is holy and pure. He said, So even if I made you sorry with my letter, I don't really regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle that made you sorry, though it was only for a little while, In other words, it did its job. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. In other words, you can see the internal motivation. You can see the spiritual reason why Paul said what he said and did what he did. He was actually caring for their soul. And the reason you know that is the result. They got the message. They turned around. They repented. They went the other way. It did something that was right and righteous in their life. They suffered no loss for it. Yes, they were upset with Paul. Yes, they were even angry with him. But now that they've had a chance to allow those things to work in their life, verse 10 says what it says and means what it says. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. When I speak the right way and I say the right things, even if they may temporarily hurt someone's feelings. Now, when you're doing marriage counseling, let me just give you a little clue. If you want to be liked by everybody, never do marriage counseling. Just don't ever do it. Don't ever become a counselor of any kind, especially professional counselors who do this all day. Hey, listen to other people pour out there, and you tell them the truth. And the first thing they do is, "Oh, you hate me, and you're trying to destroy my life, and you don't understand." And you know, they just go down these roads. But the beauty of it is, and this is the glory of counseling in general, is that when they do get it, that godly sorrow that produces repentance, which is nothing more than the change of attitude and action that go together. In other words, they turn the corner and they go the right way. You go, yes, that's why I said those things. That's why I did those things. It is so hard to do that because it's easier to just let them go their way. Let them destroy their life. It's easier to just, well, I don't really care. You know, you got yourself into this, you get yourself out of it. If you love someone, you're willing to tell them the things that are necessary, but you will do it in a way that is the least damaging or hurtful to them. You let them know. It's like, look, I I have to tell you these things. But because I love you, I'm even going to give you a strong encouragement. There's a place for strong encouragement. Another way of saying correction. Even a rebuke. You know, there are times when I just have to rebuke people. It's like, you're, you're just wrong. It's not that I don't love you. You're just flat out wrong. But I have to do that in a way that they can think about it and go, wow. Why would he say something like that? Back in those days and times, it wasn't exactly easy to get around and go from place to place and minister to people's hearts. You know, it's not like they could text or email back then, amen? You know, they're, they're not sitting around, we love you, bro. Smiley face. Hashtag get over it, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> I think Doesn't, didn't work that way, you know? You're like making some 400-mile journey on a donkey and then across on a, you know, a Roman slave galley and... You know, you finally get there, and if you want to write somebody a letter, it wasn't like you could even use snail mail back then. You know, it wasn't like you lick a stamp and put it on an envelope. It might take months or years for somebody to get a communique from you. And so when people said things, they guarded very carefully what they said, because chances are they're going to get exactly one time. They may never see that person again. So how much more in our day and time when we can say something immediately following? You know, sometimes I'll I'll shoot a text and I'll realize that I've said something that wasn't really clear. Anybody ever do that? You know, I use the wrong emojis or whatever. It's like, you know, you put a string of them there and they're supposed to equal something, but it doesn't quite work out that way. You know, sometimes I'm immediately following it up with something else because I'm trying to correct it. If we're really trying to encourage people, we should be clear with our communication. And sometimes clear means not talking. It means just saying, you know, I need to think on this. I don't know if the Lord's actually spoken to me yet. But Paul was encouraged by the repentance that was going on in the church in Corinth. And so he says, Godly sorrow brings Repentance that leads to salvation. He's not talking really about salvation in, the, in a general sense. He, he's talking about the situation because we're not saved by works. We're not saved simply because we said something or did something. We're saved by grace and through faith. But what he's saying is, is that the right type of sorrow is necessary even in our salvation experience. I have to realize I'm a sinner in order for me to know that I need a savior, amen? So that's actually repentance. I'm going, God, I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn around and go towards you. He's talking about an attitude of heart, not an action. And so when you think about what he's really trying to say, what Titus has done in his life, he's saying like he brings this message to him and he says, man, it's turned the whole thing around. And he's talking about repentance. He's saying, look, the, 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 the church has turned around. They've repented. And that's why Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he repents, you know, forgiveness is, is, is not to be Conditional. But if you want to have restoration, there has to be a change of heart and attitude. You know, you're not going to get very far on the road to, to restoration if you say, I'm sorry, I really do love you, then you punch somebody in the face. You know, They're going kind to of probably believe what you do over what you say. So actions and words need to match up, amen? That's really what the message that Paul's bringing here says, oh, man, when it happened, all of a sudden, all I know is there's a turnaround in your life and you're doing the right thing. And then it turns around and goes back to Titus himself. Notice the rest of the passage. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, and what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you prove yourself to be clear in this matter. He's saying, look, these things that you did, you did the right way, and in doing them the right way, it completely vindicated you. When you do things the right way, when you don't add to the problem, that's the shortest path to vindication. Can I tell you that I've watched a lot of people turn around and do the very thing that they're accusing somebody else of to try and get even so they can win? And then ultimately, all it does is prolong the whole issue. And so Titus and, and, and Paul in this, in this particular situation, as they're dealing with this radically messed-up church, they're saying is, look, you, the way you handled yourself was so perfect that everyone had to own their own stuff. They actually had to say, "You know what? You're right. It was me." And therefore, although I wrote you, verse 12 says, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong. Notice he's speaking about the original problem that may go back to the first letter to the church at Corinth. Nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong. But that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Look, I'm only concerned about God using this in your life. If you want to restore relationships with anybody, then you have to be concerned primarily about how God is going to use it in their life. Whatever it is that you say, whatever it is that you do, your chief concern is how is God going to use what I'm going to say and what I'm going to do, how is God going to use that in this person's life? What tool am I handing the Lord to use for his kingdom in that person's life? Because every word you say can be used for good or it can be used for bad. Rarely are words neutral. And I mean very rarely. They might only be slightly bad or slightly good, but they're rarely neutral. We want them to be always positive. We want them to be used for the kingdom always. And therefore... We have been comforted in your comfort. I love that. It should comfort everyone when everyone is comforted. It it makes me very concerned for people when things are going well, when, when there has been a change and when there's been a turnaround and I hear somebody complaining, well, I don't think it's real. Very often they cross their arms like I'm doing right now. Well, I don't know about that. I'm not sure it's genuine repentance. Can I tell you it's not your job to determine whether someone else is genuinely repented or not? It is not your job. That's God's job. But when there's been a turnaround, we should all rejoice in it. When something good is going on in somebody's life, we should absolutely rejoice in it. We want to be a part of the answer, a part of the solution, and not a part of the problem. We've been comforted in your comfort, knowing we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. You know, I've actually watched people complain about other people doing good. I have actually watched people complain about other people doing good. Well, I don't think they deserve it. I don't think it's genuine. If if that's you, if you can't rejoice when other people are rejoicing, if you can't rejoice when other people are comforted, if you're one of those people that has to always have something negative to say, you probably want to check your own heart. You, You probably want to look inside before you look outside there's more than likely something going on with you. Because it's not always everyone else's fault. Very often it's me. And I found when I get that negative kind of thing going on in my life, I can almost always trace it back to myself. I start seeing things through the lens of my own problems, or I see things through the lens of my own understanding. We're supposed to rejoice when others rejoice, and we weep when they weep, and everything in between. That's the response the Lord has. He rejoices when we rejoice, and he weeps when we weep. That's how we be like Jesus to other people. For if in anything I've boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. It's like, look, I, I didn't just pick on your faults. I told him all the great things that was going on with you. This is another another such wonderful lesson for us. Don't just correct. Encourage. Don't just tell people what's wrong tell them what's good, too. If you've got something that needs to be a, a criticism, or maybe there's something the Lord's truly put on your heart to share with somebody, and, and perhaps it is something that needs to be uh, addressed, you can also follow it with some other things so that their spirit's not broken and crushed. This is a tremendous lesson in parenting. As parents, we have to, we have to address things in our children's lives. But if all you do is correct, I guarantee you your children will think that you do not love them. If all you do is establish a list of rules and regulations in your home and tell them how far short they fall and you never give them the positive encouragement they need, you are going to raise some children with very severe emotional problems they need encouragement they need love we all need encouragement and we all need love and we're supposed to keep doing that throughout our entire life as we grow more into the image of jesus and so paul spells these things out he said with earnestness in this very thing of course there's godly sorrow But in doing it the right way, you vindicate all the things that were said. And so the church was grateful for Titus doing this difficult work. And they told him so. And as I climb higher and higher, the stairs that that will eventually lead me to heaven, if you want to look at it metaphorically, that's the goal. If you want to look at it metaphorically, the, the, the Scala Sancta are actually kind of a, a, a true representation of what should be happening in our lives. Because at the top of those stairs, if you go to Rome and you do make it at the top of the stairs, guess what's at the top? It's a picture of heaven, supposedly. Of course, nobody's been there. We don't know what it looks like, but we'll forget that. But it's heavenly. As we climb up, as we go through these arduous things, as we're on our knees before the Lord, as we're scaling our way, trying to work out these things in our own life, as we're trying to be used in other people's lives, we're supposed to be getting closer to heavenly. Closer to the Lord. And when we do that, everyone benefits from it. That's the craziest thing about this. Everyone benefits from it. and his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all and how with fear and trembling you received him and therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. And I pray that we we do our part to be used to encourage others in, in their journey And so I I would just leave you with a couple of things. Are you resisting God's work in your own life? And let me give you a little clue as to how you might be doing that. This is a very odd passage from the book of Deuteronomy. It's found in chapter 27, verse 5. And it simply says, you shall... Build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you shall not use an iron tool upon them. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were told to make their altars out of the stones that God made. In other words, if I were to take out my iron tool of, say, pride, or arrogance, or knowledge, or understanding, or anything else that kind of represents my humanness, I might chisel a stone to make it in my own image. And so I think what I would leave you with is this. Make sure that you're worshiping God the way he is. That you're serving God the way he is. That you're not trying to change him into your image, but you are worshiping him in his image that you're not trying to chisel away on his character, that you let him mold and shape yours. So that as you climb higher, you simply end up looking more like him, talking more like him, acting more like him. I want to encourage other people to be like Jesus. And sometimes in order to get there, things have to go in our lives, family. It was so true in the life of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. And here you have this incredibly gifted prophet, this man who writes what, what I think is the Mount Everest of, of the Old Testament. The prophecies of Isaiah speaking of Jesus, chapter 52 and chapter 53, as he writes of this incredible vision of the Lord Jesus. The man that wrote those prophecies was also the man about whom it said that in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah worshipped Uzziah the king. And Uzziah was a great king. But Isaiah was worshipping Uzziah the king and not the Lord. And it was in the year that King Uzziah died and got out of the way that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And it was there that the train of his robe reached throughout to the temple and landed on the earth. It was there that Isaiah got a clear view of God. And so whether it's you taking out an iron tool and chiseling away God's character and trying to make him like yourself, or whether it's you not clearly having a good view of God because it's blocked by maybe even something good, Make sure that you're actually wanting to be like the Lord and not trying to make him like you. And don't let anything get in the way of your view of heaven. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me and we'll pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you your patience with us and your gentleness with us. Jesus, your meekness, which is never weakness, but Lord, that you left all of the power of heaven and came to this earth and humbly took upon yourself the form of a man. Lord, would we be that humble and that meek about who we are. Lord, we're messengers of the king and we want that message to be clear and so god don't let us chisel away at your character and don't let us put anything in front of you help us to be an encouragement to one another to lift each other up lord to be with each other needs in those moments where our faith is being tested Maybe there's some tonight that are struggling with something. God, please, in Jesus' name, would you set them free? Remove the blinders in their lives that Lord, has allowed them to be in that situation in the first place and just deliver them by your strong hand. Lord, we love you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We so marvel at the gift of faith. Lord, increase our faith. Fill us with joy. Help us to be an encouragement to you and to others. In Jesus' name, amen.